Hello, and welcome to Casually Obsessed, a podcast about the pop culture we can't stop thinking about. I'm your host, Chelsea Bergen, and each episode I'm joined by a different guest to talk about a different piece of pop culture. Books, movies, television, anything obsession-worthy is up for discussion. Today's episode is part two of a conversation I had with Allison Arcos about the CBS all-access show Star Trek Picard. This part of our conversation has spoilers, so choose your own adventure on whether it's the right fit for you. Anything we mention or recommend in this episode will end up in the show notes, which you can find at casuallyobsessedpodcast.com slash Picard. If you enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways for this podcast to grow. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, let's start the show. it would be interesting to kind of take an opportunity to talk about some of the other characters that populate the world of Picard particularly because I think that I'm on record as saying that I really love chosen family shows and like really that's basically what like the first season of Picard is sets up yeah um bringing all of these people together who like don't really have any business being together and that's what's so wonderful about it well i feel like we've talked about dad so maybe we should talk about mom well now that i've said that though i want to make sure we're on the same page about mom well i feel like there are only two choices for mom mom could be rafi or mom could be seven of nine yeah or both (laughs) uh i was talking about rafi though that's what i thought yeah but then when you were like, are we on the same page? I was like, who else could it be? Um, Yeah. So I think that Rafi is like, has the most heartbreaking story on Picard. And also um, it like functions, I think, as the show's like moral compass a bit. Um. Like, Rafi, you know, so, spoiler alert, <laughs> when I, we should have said that earlier, maybe, but Rafi, after she gets fired from Starfleet, has substance abuse issues and loses her family because of her sort of, I think, like, relentless adherence to the fact that the explosions on Mars weren't all what they seemed to be. And so I think when she wasn't battling her demons, she was doing research and, like, using her um, pretty, like, advanced sort of investigative um, and, like, hacking skills uh, to try and figure out the truth of what happened, like, to that situation. And I think that that um, sort of relentless pursuit of the truth uh, is one of the sort of like philosophical, philosophical, I can speak English, underpinnings of like both Starfleet's mission 
like as an institution and the show that part of the show is trying to uncover like what the um, truth of humanity is and and I think that Rafi's pursuit of the sort of truth of the events of the um, Romulan evacuation is a bit of a stand-in for that and I think that uh, as it relates to like what happens to her character personally um, it is so interesting to me that she loses her family because I think that she has really strong caretaking like instincts Um, and you see her take care of basically every other person on La Serena she takes care of Captain Picard you know she gets him a ship and a pilot and she gets him lots of information that helps him sort of achieve his goal she takes care of Agnes when Agnes is feeling sort of heartbroken about everything that she's done and the danger that she's putting her her teammates in she takes care of captain rios when he i think has a ptsd episode upon seeing soji for the first time um and so i think that uh when we were like we we talked about dad you know now we got to talk about mom i think she really uh it is so sad that she, you know, no longer has a strong relationship with her biological family, which is explored, I think, in episode five. But um, it, I think, is a bit of a, like, redemption arc for the character that she has such, like, a place of respect, you know, um, and is able to effectively take care of her new chosen family. And I think that uh, her character's arc is even more redeemed by um, uh, what looks like the beginning of a really nice um, relationship with Seven of Nine, which I hope that they explore in season two. One of the things that Rafi says about herself, um, Dr. Girati at one point says to her, you're a really good person. And Rafi says, I'm more like the wreckage of a good person in an emergency you can cobble a good person together but kind of only for a short period of time and I think all of the things that you said about Rafi are true and also she's incredibly paranoid (laughs) and does not have any coping skills and she's not always necessarily nice to the people around her and that does it does cause issues for everyone um i mean i think she would be much less interesting if it if it weren't for all of the bad stuff yeah like yeah you know no one wants to watch a character just like be nice and care for everyone all the time because like that's boring yeah (laughs) does not make for good tv that description of rafi that she gives herself as the wreckage of a good person really resonated with me we don't really we see very little of what her past was like we basically just get one scene um that takes place 
on the day that Picard resigned where we see sort of <clears throat> what she was like before her life fell apart. Um, and I think in that scene, you both see like that she's much more put together. And also you can already see kind of the cracks starting to form that ultimately lead to her life falling apart. Oh yeah. Cause I think in that scene you see her um, like working at, uh, as a very adept strategist you know she was able to like plot the beats of the conversation that Picard had with the leadership to try and get the um uh, Romulan evacuation back on track um well okay they had this but you had this to counter them they had this you had this to counter them and I think that there's not actually like too far of a gap between like uh being able to strategize and paranoia (laughs) And I and so I think it, it's really easy for you know once she's lost everything to see what that sort of uh, descent into um, fear and loss looks like. Yeah, there's um that saying of like um, just because you're paranoid like doesn't mean they're not after you. But in Rafi's case, I feel like it's a little bit of the reverse. Like just because they're after you doesn't mean you're not paranoid. Like <laughs> yeah. Um, ha- you having been right about something doesn't mean that you are totally um, like justified in your yeah. Paranoia. It doesn't mean that yeah that you're totally justified in all the things that you've done or all of the things that you thought because um, there was all of this shady stuff going on and Rafi knew that something was happening, but in a lot of ways she was also wrong about what um what exactly that was and you see her kind of putting the pieces together um as the show goes on but yeah she knew that something was up she was right about that but she maybe didn't didn't handle it that well (laughs) yeah and I actually think that that's like another theme of the show is like humility in being right Uh, (laughs) so all right, so you want to talk about... I feel like we talked Rafi, not to death, but, like, we did a good job. I liked that our interpretations are slightly different as mirrored by our, like, personalities in that I am more of a, like, rainbows and unicorn person <laughs> than you are, <laughs> which is reflected in, like, what I chose to highlight. Um, but you're right. Rafi is interesting because there's capacity for lots of different, like... Um, you know, good and bad elements of her personality. So I do want to talk about Soji. I'm also kind of interested to talk about the Romulans as a like group of people. And then some of the specific Romulan characters that we interact with. Let's talk Romulan. Okay. Um, a thing that we, didn't know when we first started watching this show um i think we literally did a like pause in google for like what is the difference between romulans and vulcans um because they sort of draw this distinction there's a distinction between them but if you're if you're not familiar with the universe it's like well they both have pointy ears and like scary angled eyebrows (laughs) um but like what's what's the deal and so 
a summary for anyone that's not familiar is that uh, Vulcans and Romulans share common ancestry. Um, at one time, they were all Vulcans. And then when kind of the idea of um, suppressing emotions and becoming sort of very like disciplined was introduced to the Vulcan culture, there was a group of them that split off and they then became Romulans. So from a like, I don't know, I guess biological perspective, they're the same, but there have been sort of hundreds of hundreds of years of cultural differences that have since developed. And so Vulcans are um, known for being having the utmost commitment to logical. They kind of suppress all emotions and they're very peaceful, um, whereas Romulans are not peaceful. No, they're <laughs> incredibly secretive and militarized and um in some ways their emotions are very close to the surface they act very um not impulsively because they're very calculating but they um they're very vol they're emotionally volatile yeah that's a great way to describe them because i feel like even the quote-unquote like good guy romulans that we get in picard are violent romulans Mm. um and so there is something a little bit weird to me about the like if the point of the series is like understanding what makes someone human and the idea of like othering Um, And synthetic lives as, like, other. I think Romulans are very much portrayed as other. um, Because a lot of the sort of... I would say every villain that we're dealing with is a Romulan. um, In Commodore O, um, Narek, and Larissa. Narissa? Narissa? I think Narissa. It's a much more evil name. Okay. Um, But... Like, all of them are exceedingly violent. And even good guy Romulan Elnor, also (laughs) exceedingly violent. Um, And so I think that there's something a little bit off to me about, like, the portrayal of Romulans on the show as sort of, like, being a bit one note and being a bit violent. I think Elnor is developed the most, but that the relationship between Narek and Narissa is, like, comically sort of, like, evil and incestuous. Narissa is, like, an especially, like, villainous character, I think, where she's given, like, one scene of normalcy with her, you know, aunt in a coma. And, like, that's it. Commodore O, I think, is also, like comically villainous you know and so I think that there is like the show might have been served by um listening to some of its own lessons and uh instilling like a bit more humanity in those characters because I think that they had a legitimate fear you know what I mean and I think that um there's something interesting in you know how does fear sort of like corrupt people and um and sort of contribute to their demise 
but they just uh i would have appreciated i think more development for those characters um because i don't uh maybe it's just me i think very few of us are like one note evil you know i think that we all have room for a bit more complexity than that i i'm actually not sure that i agree um i do think they're the romulan characters are with the exception of eleanor like um less developed than some of the other characters on the show but i'm not actually sure that i think that they are one note insofar as um I think there are two things that kind of inform that. One is um, from what I have read at this point up until um, Picard, the presence of Romulans on the show previously has been like entirely as sort of like mustache twirling villains. Like there was no, (laughs) um, there was no real like characterization of them. They were just like the bad guys. And so one of the things that they were trying to do with Picard is to explain that a little bit. And so I think that's where the role of um, of mythology and history and culture comes into play yeah. in the show is that they're trying to explain that the, um, the violence that we see from Euromulans is a product of their culture which is premised on fear and in a lot of ways also a like fundamental misunderstanding like we find that the um the Romulan secret police the tall Shi'ar are sort of just the most recent iteration of a very old secret cabal called the Jat Vash and that the Jat Vash have this legacy of um, going to this sort of message that they believe was left for them that they called the admonition. And it drives a lot of people insane. Like people actually like kill themselves after watching it. Um, but this message that they believe that was left to tell them that basically like synthetic life has before and will ultimately destroy you. And the thing that we find out is that actually that's not what the message says at all. Um, In fact, it says the opposite, that humans will destroy synthetic life. Um, But because the message wasn't designed for humans to receive it, the Romulans interpret it as like, this is a doomsday message to warn us about the dangers of synthetic life. And so they've constructed this entire mythology and folded it into the fabric of their culture around this idea of this sort of impending doom. And as Picard says, fear is a bad teacher. And so I think while we get while we get a limited portrayal of the Romulan characters on an individual basis, I think we get a ton of information about their culture and the way that it informs them. And I think given 
what we know about the kind of um, the way that paths diverged for the Vulcans and the Romulans kind of speaks to this like nature versus nurture idea of like clearly the nurturing is a big part of it if these two groups of people are so incredibly different and yet biologically have this, similar yeah have this common ancestry yeah um i mean first and foremost you're really smart and i'm <laughs> glad that we're friends um in listening to you talk about that i actually started to reflect on earlier episodes when soji uh is still dr soji asha and is more of an academic trying to use mythology as a like method of processing trauma for the Borgs that are being reclaimed, the Romulan Borgs being reclaimed back into society, the XBs. And I think that that is really interesting that on some level, like early Romulans um, encountered the admonition. It was awful. <laughs> and so they created this mythology as a way of like processing the idea that the end of the world could come if not prevented and here are the bits and pieces that they picked up that sort of like spoke to that prophecy and you definitely um i think are, are fed that idea you know across a couple of different um touch points and the show does a really i think like lovely job of um creating that symbolism and that meaning of Romulan mythology and religion through a lot of the artifacts and stories that you hear. So there's a, you know, card game that you see Soji playing and Ramda playing that they're sort of um, reflecting on the meaning of mythology. You hear Narek and Elnor relating the story of Gamadan. Gamadan? It's hard because there are so many... um, words that Mythological are not yeah, yeah. words that sound the same gormagon gormagon <laughs> like what <is> yeah <laughs> uh, i think it's gormadon or something similar yeah it's like that got is a, a g and an a and an m and a, a d in it is it one of those things where if you just like say it fast it sounds right like gormadon so the but you hear them like recounting it you know literally around a campfire um uh, as if it as a I think really reflective like scene of oral tradition. Um, and so I think that, yeah, there's a lot there in terms of like, if your signature sort of like mythos and religion is like built on fear, um, what does that do to you as a people? And is that a really great teacher? And then I think it's so interesting then that the sort of group of Romulans that, Picard really gloms on to are these like assassin nuns whose whose name I I can't remember um Guan something anyway uh but their whole purpose in life is to dedicate themselves to lost causes so it's almost like a direct antidote to fear right that this group of people like live without fear and this is the group of people that Picard is most attracted to like in sort of uh, Romulan space and that's who he spends lots of time with and that's how he um, essentially comes to view you know Elnor their sort of adopted sidekick (laughs) as a a son 
Yeah, and that group practices um, complete candor, which is sort of antithetical to the Romulan culture that is comprised on secrecy. And you have this group who is like, we're going to be completely honest about what we think and how we feel. And I think that that's that's such an interesting premise. Um, I do think we see a little bit of particularly in um, Narek, we see that character sort of rubbing up a little bit against um, Romulan ideology. I will say that like, I'm just, I'm like a sucker for the sort of like fell in love with the target, like (laughs) spy kind of (laughs) stories. Um, So you just like brown hair, blue eyes as a combo. I mean, that also, (laughs) they really hit me hard with this one. They were like, fall in love with the person you're supposed to be deceiving and also look dreamy. Like I just, I can't help myself. Um, Although there was a moment when we started watching it and I was like, I can't tell if I'm attracted to this guy or not. I don't know. I can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, man, I really lost my train of thought. Um, I'm sorry. His eyes will do that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that he does care about Soji and that, like, he probably believes that he's in love with her, even. The problem is that you can't deceive and manipulate and gaslight someone at every turn and like love them like you can think that you do but that's not what love actually looks like and I feel like that sentence should have come with a trigger warning (laughs) (laughs) um but I think that's actually very interesting in the premise of the show because it, it makes me think about um, there was an episode of Call Your Girlfriend where they were talking about love is blind and basically how um, a thing that you see happen on that show is um, the men on the show being like, I've never felt like this before with anyone. Like I've never connected to anyone in this way. And it's because men have never had a conversation about their feelings with anyone before. And so you like <laughs> stick them in a room with this woman that they can't see. And all they do is talk about their feelings. And they're like, wow, I see- feel so connected to you, which like they can have that connection with a lot of people. If they just had an honest conversation with about their feelings, um, which I feel like is very true of our culture. And I, I feel like you kind of see that in mm. the relationship with Nark and Soji where like he is manipulating her toward his own ends, but in doing so is also like sharing vulnerable parts of himself because it's the best way to make a connection with her to get what he wants. And so while he is abusing her, he's also connecting to her in a way that he is probably never connected with anyone else and so it creates this dynamic where 
he feels like he loves her and yet is doing these things that you don't do to people, to people that, that you love. love. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I almost feel for him and, and Narissa, uh, cause in the little bits of like character development that you do get for them, right? Like their parents were part of this, you know, tradition of, um, working to eliminate synthetic life and, they you know they died for it they were raised by their aunt like if you are I think indoctrinated in a belief system from a really young age I think then it becomes hard to see your motivation as anything other than just and so I think he probably thinks that he has like a very noble motivation behind his like uh, methods of psychological warfare quite frankly um if we're gonna like call it what it is yeah um and yet i think to your point his sort of vulnerability like allows him to access uh feelings that you know i think are are outside of his normal emotional spectrum um and that i think really messes with him a little bit i i actually in thinking through that a bit for me it felt almost like I think uh the queer experience of like realizing that you have romantic feelings for someone in that um not the psychological you know manipulation but I think the idea that like you don't necessarily want to recognize that the feeling that you have feelings for someone because you know that people would disapprove of it. I think that you see him, you know, every time his sister calls him out on like, don't fall in love with her. Like I smell her on you and it smells carnal or, you know, like however. That is a literal line that she says, but when you say it, it's not, it makes me so uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, I cannot remember if I've ever like said the word carnal out loud. So. I, I have not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that you see him sort of react like, uh, like kind of violently and to paraphrase a little bit, like very much in this, like, no, I'm not, (laughs) uh, sort of like whiny, shut it down. And I think that like, at least for, um, me, I saw like shades of being queer in that Hmm. and like my experience being like, do I actually feel this way or like how can I externally reject feelings for a while because I'm not comfortable like actually feeling them? Yeah. I felt for the guy because I think that there's a fair amount of like self-loathing going on there that is also an important part of his arc. Um, and, you know, you can be evil, but you hate to see people hate themselves. Yeah. I think there there's probably a way in which or there may be a way that he is maybe a little jealous of like Soji's openness. Like there's a conversation that they have and she says that she's naturally trusting, but he kind of challenges that for her. And I think 
until until her relationship with him like she's never had anyone hurt her before in any kind of you know emotional or psychological way and so she doesn't have any she doesn't have any baggage or anyone really who has like ever taught her to feel afraid and so she has this incredible openness and this trusting demeanor that would probably be impossible to have as someone that has been indoctrinated into a culture of fear and who has experienced trauma at the loss of family and that whose only way to demonstrate their value is to manipulate other people yeah 100 percent. jealous of soji right i think but yeah it's really the difference of like i think growing up marked by trauma and like really not having any at all and i think that that the whole you're you're right narek is the first person that has really hurt her and and so in the nepenthe episode where you see her just like really struggle to process that um that tracks i think if you've never had to develop coping skills you've never had to develop coping skills and that can be a heady lesson to learn when you're like running for your life (laughs) yeah and i mean if you think about it we learn that soji was created about like three years prior to the events of the show and so you know she's had some amount of interaction with other people but in the course of the show until she comes into contact with picard and his crew you know she has people that she works with but the only one only people she has any sustained contact with are essentially her boss um Hugh who's an XB who's kind of the director of this reclamation project um and you know it seems like he likes her and respects her work but ultimately like it's a professional relationship um and Narek and so like he's her kind of life raft in what is otherwise a sea of work and being surrounded by Romulans who are like fairly hostile to this project um and so she's like deeply invested in him as a person even as you see on multiple occasions she sort of specifically states that she like isn't sure if she should trust him or like questions his motives because he's not that open yeah um you know she says that again and again but ultimately he's the only person that she has around that she has any kind of intimate or close relationship with which really says something given that he's told her basically nothing about himself and that's the closest relationship in her life yeah yeah um (sighs) poor soji no, but I think, like, to your point, if all that you've ever sort of had are, like, platitudes, 
and just like very you know one note like working relationships with people um how vulnerable have you been how much have you sort of described your like interior thoughts um and I think for Soji like what you see her sort of start to reconcile over the course of the series is that she has these like interior thoughts that pop out of nowhere right that are like a part of her programming and there is just this how do I know that like how did that get in my mind and I think that um that feeling of like psychosis like feeling like you're crazy um that's a really vulnerable thing to like admit and want to unpack with someone um and so I think for her feeling like she is safe enough to do that and then having that that safety ripped away um is like uh you know, not only does it, like, activate her, right, like, as a synth, it is a deeply transformative part of, I think, her evolution as a person. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes his manipulation of her, and, like, ultimately, it's a form of abuse, is that, like, so many abusers he has this way of both validating and undermining her reality and so she's having these experiences that she doesn't feel like she can tell anyone else about and he manages to kind of navigate between telling her things like i see you these things that validate her experience and then also evading any questions that she asks and because he's actively trying to get information from her he also pushes on the things that she believes are true that aren't so there's a scene where you know he mentions something about the transport ship that she supposedly came on and how there's no record of her being on it and understandably that upsets her because it questions her reality and so she sort of basically tells him to fuck off and he manages to then draw a parallel between them um, by saying that they're kind of the same. He he does this thing where he sort of tells her that she's right or that her feelings that she's having are valid. What's happening to her is real. And then in the next turn tells her the things that she believes are real are not real. Yeah. It's evil. <laughs> it's the kind of thing like I don't know that everyone else like is is that interested or like wants to dissect like the kind of uh the mechanisms of I guess like abuse in that way, but it's something that really interests me in so far as like we can have this whole conversation about like narc as a tragic character and also talk about like the terrible things that he then inflicts on soji and how like both of those things can be true at once and how fiction provides us such an opportunity to look at both sides of that experience and 
to kind of um, recognize how you become the kind of person that does that sort of thing and to in some ways identify with that or to empathize with that um, to see someone as a sympathetic character and also that doesn't mean you let them off the hook yeah I think you can be both a sympathetic character and also an antagonist Um, I think for me it's one it really is indicative of like the cycles of abuse right like we hurt so we inflict hurt upon other people and I think that like that experience for Soji was so traumatic that there is a direct parallel between how she experiences Narek's betrayal and how she you know fully commits to the uh, synthetic mission of build a beacon you know like fuck the organics um because i think that for her and for for all of us really it's about like finding places that you feel safe yeah and she does not feel safe with organic life because of what narek did to her and and so instead of i think you know and again we've talked about she's like a kid she doesn't you know she hasn't really lived through trauma she like doesn't have coping skills um and so what does she try to do she immediately tries to sort of say like well i'm gonna put like you know literal like walls up (laughs) and i'm going to um like bring about change such that you can't hurt me anymore and it's not until picard like models better behaviors for her that she's able to like stop the cycle and um i think realize like what a better path forward is yeah in talking about this it also it makes me realize it kind of mirrors picard's relationship with starfleet like it's a little bit different insofar as starfleet is an institution and not a person but he has this relationship of like he believed so strongly in the mission of Starfleet and then they let him down and he felt that they fell short of what they were aspiring to and it left him feeling very disillusioned and really kind of um, took his life off course in some ways and he you know at the start of the show tries to not repair it really, but tries to pretend, you know, that that damage didn't happen and tries to kind of reconnect with Starfleet and isn't able to do that. And it's only through um, kind of, he has to repair that relationship and recognize the ways that Starfleet as an institution did stray from its mission and also the ways that he was if not complicit the way that he let his idealism uh conflict with doing actual good yeah yeah he let his idealism get in the way of his activism um yeah i think that that's exactly right i mean to continue to draw parallels to the world that we live in today right like um, from every email from every company whose email list I've ever been a part of ever I think we're getting these artifacts that institutions 
do have morals, you know, and institutions like do have a value set that they supposedly like ascribe to or they have potentially steered from depending on the tone of the email (laughs) and um and so i think that for for picard and his relationship to starfleet i i think that he was like so hell-bent on like being right and sort of saying like no stick to the mission that like you ascribe to that he he forgot that like the world isn't quite that black and white that there are you know there's like a lot of space between those two things um and then you see sort of what happens as he i think like deals with the fallout um and i think like to talk about a character who we haven't spent a ton of time talking about captain rios i think that for me his his disillusion with Starfleet is like one of the more um, heartbreaking moments of the series in sort of listening to him when Picard first meets him, you know, he's like, I've only seen, you know, been in this like ship for 10 minutes, but like you're Starfleet true and true, you know, every bolt is in its proper place, yada, yada, yada. Um, and, and what you're really seeing is a man who, like, does not see that as a compliment, but really um, sees that as, like, on some level, I think, further proof that uh, he's not good enough. That, like, he didn't handle things the way that he should have in, like, covering up um, what happened to his captain, Captain Vandermeer. Um, and so in, like, covering that up and, like, following Starfleet's orders and then getting discharged um i think the idea that he's starfleet true and true is like not a compliment for him it's actually like a marker of um like failure great i really i really wanted to spend all of that time talking about narek i just had a lot of feelings (laughs) oh i have a fun fact for you yeah i have a fun fact for you about the Romulans, which was that um, the inspiration for Romulans was the idea or kind of the question of what would have happened if the Roman Empire had made it to the point of space flight. Interesting. That is a fun fact. That actually explains a lot, I think, um, from like a... Romans had like pretty clearly defined class structures um which I think when you have really clearly defined class structures there's a lot of like um inferiority and superiority like feelings that go along which are I think like fierce cousins um and the Roman Empire, I think, when you think about it, like, mythologically speaking, is, like, most known for being expansive and wide and, like, taking bits and pieces of everyone else's mythology and, like, weaving them in their own, which is why you see such strong parallels between, like, Greek and Roman mythology, and then Roman mythology also incorporates, like, 
bits of like Spanish mythology and like African mythology and basically any time any place that the empire touched like they were like oh that's cool we'll take that (laughs) um and so that I feel like speaks a little bit to the sort of uh cultural diversity that I think that you see in Romulans a model also carried through by the Christians which makes sense given their relationship to to Rom yeah (laughs) i feel like i have become more of a star trek fan through this experience like i watched the show the i watched picard and was really into it and then we started watching discovery and i liked that as well and in preparing for this episode did like research on some of the you know history and I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff there and now like we're having this conversation and talking about like the Romulans and like their relationship to Romans and Mm -hmm. um, culture influencing people and I feel like these are the kinds of things that make me really interested and obsessed with different properties is thinking about their connections to other things. Um, I feel like one of my favorite experiences is when it feels like something is connected to everything else. When you sort of start thinking about a book and then you're out in the world and someone starts talking about like some scientific principle and you're like, Oh, that's connected to this book that I was reading because of blah, blah, blah. And it's like, everything seems to everything starts to feel like it's in conversation with that particular thing um and I am definitely like having that feeling about Star Trek um so also that's what it's like to live inside my brain (laughs) yeah I don't know if I had any larger points in that other than I feel like I have been um building the the ship of star trek fandom as i have started sailing it yeah i think that's okay um i feel like the thing that you're talking about is like when you see like an image of a brain's like synapses lighting up you know like in a science museum like oh they're thinking about like x that that lights up the like blah 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 part of the brain it's like when you're engaging with a piece of content and then all of a sudden like the things that are lighting up it's not in your brain it's like around you you know what I mean and so you get to see all of the little like sparks of connection and I think that that's really beautiful um Romulans would be named after one of the founders of Rome there were two twin brothers per mythology Romulus yeah the the two planets that that they land on after they leave Vulcan are Romulus and Remus. Yeah. Cute. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think that it, what's really nice about Star Trek is the fact that the universe is so expansive. Like, there are multiple timelines, you know, they, uh, Picard, I think, is actually somewhat interesting in that there is no time travel, and time travel is a pretty like, hallmark part of, like, every single star trek series i have watched and even some of the movies um but they they do a good job i think of building a really diverse world 
Um, and that is interesting to me. Can you say more about what you mean when you say a diverse world? Yeah, I mean, I think think when we as a society talk about diversity, there tends to be like a bit of a, a concentration on like racial diversity. Um, and that's part of it. You know, I think Star Trek series have like in their history um, racial diversity amongst their like human <laughs> characters. But I think that they also have like species diversity right in that um as the like population that they're at war with then becomes like a part of the federation you know in like subsequent series like you see klingon characters go from being the antagonist to being part of the brig part of the like part of the commanding crew yeah but i I specifically meant like in a position of power oh you mean the bridge yeah you said brig, which is I like did. jail. Yeah. Bridge. Bridge. <laughs> Tired. I haven't finished my coffee. It's 3.15. <laughs> um, so you see Klingons being part of the bridge, uh, being in positions of power. And, and like that pattern gets repeated um, beyond, I think, like racial and species diversity. I think that you have like emotional diversity and that either that can like manifest in sort of different you know cultural upbringings but like also just how people process things differently I think that like the hallmark example of that would be Spock and like would be Vulcans um and I would say the sort of like emotional repression like as foils to the like Captain Kirk like shoot him up cowboy you know style of diplomacy (laughs) um And so I think that, like, having people serve as, like, foils to one another and then developing, like, strong friendships and partnerships and pairings, like, as a result of those um, different emotional capacities, I think that that's, like, growth and that's diversity. And that is, you know, showing what we can all learn from one another. And I think that is really beautiful. Um, and to that end, I think the, like, building the ship of your, like, Star Trek fandom as you sail it, or fly it, um, (laughs) I think that, like, that ship is never going to get, like, finished being built, because the minute that it's, like, finished, it's going to, like, contort into something else, because I think that what is so nice about the diversity of their world is that it allows it to evolve that was so well said apparently I'm good with words (laughs) thanks I want to as we start to bring the conversation to a close I I do want to open it up if there's anything in the kind of conclusion of the first season of the show that you particularly want to talk about or anything that we hope kind of gets carried in season two um, would be interested to touch on that. Um, I want more seven of nine. We didn't really talk about her that much in this conversation, but she was one of my favorite characters growing up watching Voyager. Um, I think 
contributes to some of the like more badass action sequences in uh, this series. And I think that there is like a real emotional depth to Jerry Ryan's like performance that I think just because she's had a little bit more time with the character, um, like really elevated the show. And I just like want more of it. (laughs) Um, I also want more Kestra, uh, who's Will and Deanna's daughter uh, on Nepenthe. Like, I just really enjoy a girl who goes around, like, befriending eccentric captains, like, using her bow and arrow to hunt meat for her family, and, like, speaking, like, several made up, you know, uh, several invented languages, and, um, I think, like, her lesson to Soji on what coping skills might look like is, uh, one of the more, like, emotionally powerful moments of the series, and when you and I were rewatching, we both agreed we would like watch a whole series about her, and I stand by that. Um, so I think in terms of like characters that I want more of <laughs> would be those two on the short list. Um, I really, I think I'm really excited. Something that upon our rewatch too, uh, that. I was like, they've been like, you know, showing us the entire time is that in the credits or like in the opening credits for the series, there is this piece of the sky, like this piece of life that sort of travels through um, the universe before landing on Picard's neck, which I think was, you know, foreshadowing his uh, like evolution into a synthetic um, the entire time. And so I'm really interested in, because the first season was so much about him, like, reconciling with and recognizing his privilege and his power, now that he's a synthetic, like, can he use that responsibly? And does he use that responsibly um, in sort of a, like, advocating for synthetics? Um, And what does that look like? Or advocating for the XBs um, and former Borg? You know, I think that there's, like, more to explore there. So I feel like in conclusion, more blonde people. <laughs> no. It, um, so I feel like in conclusion, more Seven of Nine or Annika, more Kestra. And my hope for season two is I I want to see Picard's speech making um, put to good use. What about you? Well, I'm I'm realizing that despite the fact that sort of off air we've talked a lot about this, we have not at all talked about just like how phenomenal of an actress um, Issa Briones is. Oh, yeah. Through the course of the show, she plays Dodge, Soji, and Sutra. We don't see her playing the character of Jana, but it's implied that she... There's also this other character that looks like her. So who knows? Maybe we'll see her play more characters in the future. Um, But I think actually, particularly in in the re-watching it, I definitely had moments of feeling like Suture was played by a different character because she sort of plays opposite herself for a lot of the last two 
episodes. Yeah. Um, which I think is really the hallmark of great acting. I think um, you saw that happen in Orphan Black um, where there were moments that, you know, you had like four characters at a time being played by one person and it felt like they were truly different people. And I think that you you see that here in in Picard. And I think um, Sutra is actually an interesting character insofar as, like, she it becomes an antagonist, but I think is a further demonstration of the way that fear can shape and drive people and something yeah um that Issa talked about um in an episode of the kind of after show that uh CBS All Access does it's called the Ready Room um she talked about how one of the things that she used to kind of construct the character of Sutra was how traumatic the experience was of Sutra's sister, Jana being killed. And that that's one of her earliest experiences is her sister going out into the world and being murdered just purely because of who and what she is. And that that deeply informed Sutra's view of the world and of biological life forms. Yeah, I also think there's something really interesting in the character of Sutra. If you grow up on an island of twins and like from very early on, you're sort of a solo (laughs) character, um, like you have, I think, probably more of an opportunity to develop like individualized leadership skills, which you see her sort of put to use. And so then if you have someone who sort of by de facto position, like is alienated and also in charge being like led by fear, you you can see very easily, I think like why her character behaves the way that she does. Um, But yeah, Issa Briones is like, so fabulous and uh fun fact that i looked up <laughs> in researching um or that i discovered is that she is the one singing as uh data dies and and they had her record that song specifically for the episode and that felt very i think fitting i'm sorry did you know that she sang rewrite the stars i did yeah <laughs> I was going to look that up later. It's fine. <laughs> it's a greatest showman reference for those of you at home who wondered Allison what just happened. Loves the greatest showman. Loves the greatest showman. This is um, embarrassing. So I think the other character who like the other thing that we have talked about a bit that we haven't really gotten into, but just want to like appreciate their acting is the actor who played Captain Rios and all of the holograms that he and yeah. had to portray and like the accent work needed <laughs> for all of those different personalities. And I think that 
the scene where Rafi is trying to get to the bottom of what his sort of uh, post-traumatic uh, breakdown is upon seeing Soji is like really amazing acting to see him play, you know, six different characters all owning a bit of information, but not really being able to see the whole picture. Um, and I feel a little bit sad for him. Cause I think that of all his, of all the characters like captain Rios, uh, doesn't get as much to work with as everyone else. But then I feel like he, it makes up. I think that like a lot of the writing that they give captain Rios is very like, broody space pilot you know and it doesn't like it's a quintessential though you had gotta have you gotta have your like somebody's got to be brooding it's it's essential yeah but if like your character development is that you drink bourbon and read paper books like like that's hey, that's a lazy person says a lot about a person in the space age it's lazy personality um i mean he drinks because he's seen things. Yeah. Again, lazy person. Like, if you went out on a date with someone and you were like, what do you like to do for fun? And they said, I drink bourbon and I read and, like, couldn't really. Allison, that was every boy I loved in college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why do you think you're gay now? <laughs> I was a bisexual in college, too. No, I know. I'm just. <laughs> what, sorry let me rephrase yes. why do you why yes. do you think men drinking dark liquor and reading books is not a personality yeah that say, said so i feel like the most interesting bits of material that he's really given to work with are the holograms see i hear what you're saying but i don't agree insofar as i do think that's how they set him up like the very first thing that we see of rios is like he's shirtless with like some shrapnel in his shoulder and he's like smoking a cigar and like drinking. And so I think we're supposed to immediately say like, oh, this is like the broody, like um, shoots from the hip, you know, pilot. Um, and he is those things, but also we get more information about why that is. And so I think if all that we saw of him was those things, you're right, it would be, like, not a personality. It would just be, like, laziness. But we do learn that, like, he had this traumatic experience, and so he's, like, doing his damnedest, like, not to get pulled in by Picard and his speech-making because he's already done that once before, and it l ended in disaster. And you see him get like deeply emotional when he sees Soji for the first time because it brings up all of these painful experiences that he's had. And I just really want to come out here and defend Rios. I agree that the different holograms that he plays are very funny and interesting, but I think that it's unfair to Rios who is a fully formed person. I mean, I think we can agree to disagree. Like, I feel like the extent of the, his personality as it's given to us is he had a very traumatic thing happen to him and he processes it by not processing it, by literally building like these holograms so that he doesn't have to like do the processing work 
and drinking and reading paper books. I I think we're going to agree to disagree. Like, I don't think there's anything that you can say that will change my I mind. I think your implicit bias against men is coming up here, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> because you were like, Rafi's amazing. She's such a good person and a caretaker. But you're like, Rios is one note. <laughs> <laughs> the implicit bias thing is interesting. <laughs> Maybe. I still think Rafi is a good caretaker. And that, like, the only thing Rios does to take care of anyone is sleep with Dr. Girardi. I mean, you don't have to be a caretaker to be an interesting character, though. I just don't think he's that interesting. (laughs) We're, like, staring at each other. (laughs) Just giving me daggers. I think that you couldn't formulate the crew without him like I think you need that character I disagree I mean I think logistically you need a pilot and a ship both of which he provides but like I don't know that I think that the crew chemistry like needs the brooding pilot suffering from PTSD like I don't actually I think that his his arc is an important part of understanding like the recent events, you know, towards synthetics. And I think that his arc is also important in understanding the failings of Starfleet as an institution. But like, I'm talking about the arc and not the character. And I think that like a different character could have like also contributed those as like plot devices. But I think to come back to a point that I made early on about how the show um, hits all of the kind of, it hits all the beats without being formulaic. I think part of the formula for this type of, you know, you get a crew together show is that like someone has to, play the role of like wounded and broody and I can see that you do not agree but I have I wouldn't say that I traffic in spaceship shows per se or a lot of shows about like a crew but I've seen enough that like it is a staple that I think plays a more important role than you are giving it credit or alternatively if you want to tell me what your pitch would be for the character that you would replace Rios with I would love to hear it that's a problem I don't have one (laughs) Like, I don't know what character I would replace Rios with. I just think that, like, I'm not even necessarily arguing against the broodiness. I just think that we're, like, not really given enough, like, he's not given enough material outside of his brooding, his PTSD, his bourbon, and his paper books. I mean, I feel like you can't have Seven and Rios' drinking buddies if he's not 
Yeah, that I damaged got, and repressed. <laughs> I got nothing out of that scene. You literally said, I like them as drinking buddies. Yeah, I like this drinking buddy vibe. Quote, direct quote. <laughs> I think we should move on. <laughs> on that note, um, I think that we can start to wrap things up. I would love to know what you would recommend to fans of Picard. Well, um, I had a lot of trouble with this question at first. And so I like went on the internet to see (laughs) what other people were recommending. Like if you liked Picard, then X. Um, And I'm not sure that I actually loved many of their recommendations. So uh, to make this very personal, one of the reasons that I love Star Trek is because I love space battles. I think that like a good space battle is <laughs> phenomenal and is like my favorite kind of action sequence. Um, <laughs> I don't think I knew that about you. It's honestly so surprising to me. Oh, I love space battles. I find like battles to be the least interesting part of anything. <laughs> love a good space battle. <laughs> um, and so to that end, uh have you watched Battlestar Galactica no girl okay go on sorry (laughs) um so if you like space battles like I do um my favorite space battle that I have seen recently was in the Captain Marvel movie uh with Brie Larson and so I think if you enjoy like ragtag crews of people space battles and women anti-heroes um in Annette Benning's character in Captain Marvel like Captain Marvel great choice for you um so that's one of my recommendations and I think the other one that for me it was almost impossible like not to draw parallels with um, but I also feel like most people have seen this show is Game of Thrones because I feel like Game of Thrones did what Picard did in the earlier seasons where you would sort of alternate like these episodes where it was a lot of people sort of sitting around talking and like coming to a realization about something, which I think is like the first five episodes of Picard or the first four episodes of Picard and then episode seven of Picard. Um, and it kind of alternates like that pacing with like these pretty intense, like quick moving things where a lot of things happen at one time. And so from a pacing standpoint and a, uh, political motivations standpoint, I think that there's a lot of parallels, one being set in space and one being set in the medieval time. And so those, uh, Captain Marvel for the space battles, Game of Thrones for the, um, I think, analysis of political motivations and pacing would be content that I would recommend if you liked Picard. Okay. Um, I have a pretty extensive list or I had a couple of things that I picked out to start with and then a couple of things that came up in the course of this conversation. Um, if you like space battles and <laughs> questions <laughs> of synthetic life, you should absolutely watch Battlestar Galactica. Um, 
those are integral to the premise also it's phenomenal um something that i also mentioned in the conversation was orphan black um if you are interested in questions of what makes someone human who has the right to um the right to exist questions of synthetic life or cloning anything like that if that's of interest to you absolutely watch orphan black i would second that orphan black is a great tv show it is it is um if you want a book if you want a uh, a space epic um i recommend dune by frank herbert it's a classic um the book is looks very big but it's really actually not that bad i um I put off reading it for a long time because we had this like hardcover copy and I was like, that book is gigantic. And then I started reading it and it was like, oh no, there's like indices and stuff in here. It's not actually that long. Um, if you want a good space story, but that's a little bit more grounded in the, um, the characters, there are no space battles. Um, (laughs) You might enjoy the YA novel Mirage by Samaya Daoud. Um, That's really great and um, deals with a lot of questions of um, of questions of religion, questions of uh, the relationship between colonizers and the colonized, and it also has a really great love story. Um, Previously mentioned Logan, which is also starring Patrick Stewart and him revisiting a much beloved character. Really great film uh, by James Mangold. Um, If you want something really tightly plotted about people reckoning with their past, I would recommend the graphic novel Watchmen from Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Please do not watch the movie. Please do not watch the movie. Read the graphic novel. Um, That's that's all I have to say about that. Um, and if you want a kind of space romp with um, a lot of heart and a lot of weirdness, um, the comic series Saga from Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples will be of interest to you, I think. So those are my recommendations. You're really good at content recommendations. <laughs> In listening to your list, I feel like I dialed it in. <laughs> and you, like, wrote an eight-page book report. <laughs> like, I feel like it's like we gave a presentation to the class, and I had, like, a PowerPoint slide with, like, two bullets, no animations, no decorations. <laughs> and you were, like, the person who passed out, like, laminated, bound copies of the presentation <laughs> for the class to take notes on. Um, honestly, really, this is just like what it's like in my brain. Like, (laughs) um, I, (laughs) I mostly didn't really have to try that hard. I just looked at my bookshelf. (laughs) Those are our recommendations for things that you might like. If you liked Picard, also, there are many, many other iterations of Star Trek that you could watch, (laughs) including Star Trek Discovery, which is um, one of the most recent Star Treks beside this Picard. Mm-hmm. Star Trek, the next generation. 
uh, Origins of Picard, also easily findable on the internet for streaming purposes. Yeah. There are a ton of ancillary Star Trek novels. Neither of us have read any of those, but they exist. If you were like, I would rather read a book about Star Trek than watch it, you could do that. But then you would miss the fun space battles and laser sh- shooting. They're like, pew, pew, pew. I mean, you probably could, re- you probably get to read about them. Yeah, but I think it's one of those like, seeing is believing <laughs> as it relates to space battles. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Casually Obsessed. You can find us on Instagram at Casually Obsessed Podcast, and our website is casuallyobsessedpodcast.com. This show is produced by me, Chelsea Bergen, and the music is I Don't Know by Greats. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening now so that you never miss a future episode. so many things about you in this conversation oh (laughs) like Uh, you hate brooding and love space battles i just think that brooding is like not productive (laughs) what did you think rafi was doing for the 14 years before picard showed up at her door she was hurt okay (laughs) not brooding though no she was like (laughs) paranoid paranoid and like that might be from all of the drugs she's smoking yeah, <laughs> yeah look i think you're I, I maybe this is my like i'm definitely biased against drinkers and i'm really <laughs> pro people who smoke weed <laughs> the hill that you're gonna die on is that being sad and smoking your drugs is better than being sad and drinking alcohol <laughs> yeah That's my hill in Rome that I'm going to (laughs) die on.